right, uh, here we go. Um, glorification. Um, what do we do uh, while we wait um, for uh, all that God has promised in the future? Uh, now that you're nice and, and settled, why don't you stand? And uh, Revelation chapter 2. Just going to read a few verses. These are the very words of Jesus. Jesus, as he speaks to, um, to our brothers and sisters in, uh, in the church in Smyrna, uh, Smyrna um, in Turkey. Um, Smyrna is modern-day Izmir, which is, uh, I think, the second largest city in Turkey yet today. And so this is what Jesus says. So, uh, verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel in the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So he, um, so the word from the Lord Jesus Christ is this. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. This then is the very word of God. You may be seated, please. When you love someone, you will do the craziest uh, things for them. When you love someone, you just do the craziest things for them. Dakota Meyer, United States Marine, he won the Congressional Medal of Honor, our nation's highest uh, military uh, award. Dakota Meyer was uh, serving in Afghanistan on the eastern edge and the border of Pakistan uh, in a day in which um, 80 Afghan soldiers and, and a handful of American advisors were tasked to go into a, a village and meet with the um, uh, village uh, elders. It, uh, it seemed like a fairly innocuous assignment. There were four uh, U.S. soldiers who were sort of the, the lead scouts, and they were ambushed by 150 Taliban. Those uh, four were pinned down and, and taking such a heavy fire uh, that they, they radioed for help. Um, Dakota Meyer and his comrades were ordered to, to stand down, to remain in place. And he defied those orders. And he commandeered a Humvee, and he went um, to the front to rescue those uh, men. And uh, he did it not once, uh, but when he got back, he was uh, ordered again and, and threatened with sanction for defying the order. But he defied it again. He took uh, command of the, um, uh, the turret gun on the Humvee, and he killed uh, nine enemy combatants. He rescued um, 39 American and, uh, and Afghan soldiers who were in harm's way. He not only went forward looking for those four men, those two times, he did it three more times, five times, each time um, defying a direct order from his superiors. Um, and on the fifth time, he found those four Americans. They were dead. He had been um, seriously wounded uh, in the attempt, but he was able to recover their bodies uh, that they might uh, be brought home uh, to their families. And for this, 
our nation um, rewarded him. It is, it is crazy what you'll do for those you love. Really crazy. You know, 1935, I believe it was, King Edward VIII, um, King of England, um, abdicated uh, his throne. Uh, this is a very dicey time, you know, in the rise of uh, a conflict in Europe. So the British king abdicates um, the throne in order to marry uh, an American woman. Uh, and she was a divorcee, which meant uh, he could not sit on the throne of England because uh, if you're the king of England, you're also the um, head of the Church of England and you could not be married to a divorced woman. And everyone said, what are you doing? You're nuts. I mean, this woman's a common, uh, she's a commoner. She doesn't have any title. Um, she's uh, not important. Uh, she's not wealthy. In fact, they, they, they literally said, she's not even good looking. Um, she's not even attractive. You're giving up everything. Uh, but it is amazing. It is crazy what people will do um, for those that, we that they love. Well, this is the issue um, in Smyrna 2,000 years ago that we look at in Revelation chapter 2. The opposition for this church that Jesus speaks to was fierce because uh, Smyrna was a hotbed of emperor worship. In fact, they had a competition among 10 cities to which city would uh, be chosen to uh, erect a temple for uh, the emperor Tiberius and, and Smyrna won. Um, in Smyrna, you were required to worship the emperor. You were required to um, um, uh, burn incense, make sacrifices, and declare that Caesar is Lord. Well, this was, of course, problematic. Believers uh, in Jesus were not going um, to do that. On top of uh, Roman oppression, there was a Jewish community in Smyrna that hated um, the Christians. They looked at, of course, Jesus and the apostles as, as, as turncoats, as charlatans, and uh, their, their um, uh, persecution was so fierce that Jesus calls them in this passage a synagogue of Satan. So the church of Smyrna 2,000 years ago, um, and the church uh, ever since has had to answer the question, are we crazy enough about Jesus that we will be faithful to him, whatever the cost? Are you crazy enough about Jesus that you will be faithful to him whatever the cost. Um, you know, it, it wasn't very long ago that we were horrified to see ISIS march out, I think it was 21 Christians, onto a beach in Libya, and there they had them kneel, and of course they filmed this for propaganda purposes, and, uh, and they gave each a man the opportunity to deny Christ um, and, uh, and to embrace Islam. And uh, each one, in turn, um, profess that Jesus is Lord, and each one in turn had his head cut off. Um, more um, Christians uh, died in the last 100 years, more Christians died in the 20th century than um, in the entire 19 centuries before that, uh, since the death of Christ. Now, the challenge for us is um, it's fairly unlikely that anybody in this room is going to be a martyr for Jesus. Um, so what does it look like for us? Got it? So here we go. What does it mean for us to be faithful unto death? So the first thing we want to talk about is the certainty of suffering. 
If we're going to be faithful, we have to um, understand the, the utter certainty of suffering. We can't be surprised when it comes our way. Jesus warns the church at Smyrna that persecution, fierce persecution is on the way. He says you will face tribulation, poverty, slander, demonic attack, and imprisonment. And Jesus um, tells us the same. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have what? Tribulation. Even um, walking over here, my, uh, I was discussing with my wife, how much will college students relate to this message? How much have they experienced suffering up to this point in our life? Now, we know suffering comes uh, to us not just because we're Christians, not just because we're being oppressed as Christians. In fact, in our culture, that's fairly rare, but suffering comes to us because the world is broken, right? Um, we are the victims of other people. Other people harm us. We harm other people. We harm ourselves. We make foolish decisions. Um, uh, trouble cascades in on all of us. In this world, you will have tribulation. So the Bible is saying, don't be surprised. This is so important. How many people throw up their hands uh, uh, and say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus and my life is, is going to pot. You know, it's one thing after another. Where's God as if this is a surprising outcome? Nothing should appear more obvious than that suffering is normative for anybody who is a Christ follower. What did they do to Jesus? They executed him. So the idea that suffering would be alien for the followers of Christ, some group from our church just went to Italy and they were in Rome. And when they were in Rome, they went to... St. Peter's Basilica. Why is it called St. Peter's? Because it's on the traditional site of the execution of Peter. They also went to St. Paul's. Why is it called St. Paul's? Because that's the traditional site of the execution of Paul. So this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus for 2,000 years. That's why it says uh, in 1 Peter, don't be surprised at the trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though this is something strange. Um, as if you're experiencing something that nobody else has experienced. Now, the problem is this is directly contrary to the North American religion. In North America, you hook up with God uh, in order to enlist his services in giving you a trouble-free life. So there's an expectation that actually aligning myself with Jesus will lead to a life that, that has less trouble and has more um, ease. Many of you know Brene Brown, whose writings and TED Talks uh, have become quite popular. Uh, Brene Brown has come to faith in Jesus at midlife. This is what she says. I definitely went back to church for the wrong reasons. I went back because life is hard and it hurts. And all the midlife books say, go back to church. So I went back thinking it would be like an epidural. It would take the pain away. And then I discovered that faith in church wasn't like that at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me and said, push, it's supposed to hurt. And so in, the, in, uh, in a new members class I teach just a couple weeks ago, this brand new Christian, um, young, uh, young woman named Nikita, doe eyes, so fresh and in love with Jesus. She came up to me after class and she said, I'm struggling. She said, my life's worse since I became a Christian. See, this very thing, to be able to say to her, this is the way it is. This is the way it goes. It's harder to be a Christian in this world than it very often is not to be a Christian. Um, listen, uh, premarital counseling is really important. And one of the things you have to say to any couple in premarital counseling is, listen, listen very closely. 
Um, there's almost nothing I could tell you to, to, to smack that giddy smile off your faces. Um, but I don't have to because uh, you're about to get married. That'll take care of it. Um, but I tell them, in, um, here's what I want you to know. Marriage is the greatest thing you're, uh, you're ever going to experience. Uh, but it's also the toughest. And uh, here's what I want you to know is that sometime in the first six months of your marriage, and, and, and very often on your honeymoon, you'll wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, you'll look over at the other person, and you'll think, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I mean, what in the world was I thinking? And on top of that, I'm a Christian, so I'm stuck. I am trapped. Now, why do I do that? Because I got to tell you, a couple after a couple have said to me later, I am so glad you told me that. Because when it happened, I could just calm down. Because you said it happens. See what I mean? There's, so when suffering visits you, listen, one of my favorite cinematic moments is the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ. Jesus is bearing his cross um, through the city on the way to Golgotha, and he's already uh, just been eviscerated. Um, he's been beaten, and he's been beaten so severely that he collapses under the weight of the cross. And if you remember that scene in the movie, his mother comes to uh, give him aid. Jesus' eyes are swollen shut. His face is beaten to a pulp. His blood, the crown of thorns has been pressed on his head. Blood's trickling down. It's one of the most beautiful uh, cinematic scenes ever because his mother is crushed uh, as she looks in his face. Jesus' you know, eyes open just, and you see the slightest little smile on his face, and he says, Mother, I am making all things new. But what is the cost? The cost is that he's getting the tar beat out of him. So don't be surprised. There's, there's the first point. The utter certainty of suffering. Do not be surprised. Be faithful unto death. Secondly, you know, um, the purpose of suffering, you know, it helps. It helps. It, it, you know, when you encounter suffering, you and your unique, you know, your individual situation may have no idea why it's going down. But the Bible does give us some ideas of why God uh, brings suffering or allows suffering in our lives, what the purpose, the why of it is. So what does Jesus tell this church the first thing he says is that suffering tests us. Suffering is a test. He says to them, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Suffering is a, a test. You know, just like an academic test, right? A, a test reveals what the truth really is. Because we can talk a good game, right? Somebody says, you know, I'm, I am Mr. Math. I'm the master of math. I dominate math. Um, you know, math um, begs for mercy in my, uh, in my um, presence. And, uh, and all you have to do is, um, uh, and don't you love people who talk smack about math? Um, all you have to do is give them an AP calculus test and you'll uh, discover in high school whether all their bluster about math uh, is, a, is a genuine reflection of reality, right? Um, so that's what a test does. It reveals what's uh, really there. The same way there's people in the church, I'm all about Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. All for Jesus. Take my life and let it be. 
consecrated, Lord, to thee. And sometimes all you have to say is, what about your wallet? Is that all for Jesus? Do you tithe? And, uh, and it's amazing how sometimes uh, that all for Jesus goes right out the window. Uh, the Bible says where your, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is, right? Um, so there's tests. Suffering is a test. It reveals. What does suffering reveal? Here's what it reveals. Is Jesus beautiful to you or is he just useful? So in the minute his um, usefulness um, uh, leaves, then, uh, then are you not interested? Listen, that's what we hear all the time. Uh, I tried Jesus, I tried Christianity, but they didn't work. Um, we think we're all about Jesus, but maybe it's the anticipated benefits that we're most enamored with. When our comfort is taken away, will we still be crazy about Jesus? That's what the test was for Job in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Satan comes to God and says, Job's wild about you, but who wouldn't be? I mean, he's like the wealthiest person on earth. His life's a cakewalk. I mean, he's got everything. How about you start stripping away some of that comfort? We'll see if Job uh, likes you then. That's the point of the book of Job, right? Job loses everything. And yet, he says, though he slay me, yet I will serve him still. Um, suffering is a test. A police officer in Jacksonville, a matter of fact, uh, the, uh, uh, a high up in the police department, African-American man, his son was murdered. Three years later, the murderer uh, finally gets to court. And he said he walked into court that day, prepared to hate the man uh, arrested for killing his son. And he said, supernaturally, when the man walked in the courtroom, the man who killed his son, he said, uh, the Holy Spirit worked in my heart and I loved him. And you know, he was convicted of that and this uh, policeman um, asked to go visit him in jail. He forged a relationship with him. He's adopted him, uh, not legally, but he's adopted him as his own son. Um, and, uh, and he says, listen, I got a lot of father love to give and you stole my boy from me. Um, so I'm gonna give it to you. See what I mean? It's a test. Uh, he, he passed the test, didn't he, that policeman? Um, suffering is a test. But suffering, there's another purpose for it. It strengthens us. Suffering strengthens us. Jesus wants his people to be overcomers, it says. Um, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, uh, it says in this passage. He wants us to be tough and tenacious to be able to face the storm and be steadfast and, and immovable. Do you know the most beautiful people have had that beauty, uh, have come by that beauty um, through defeat and suffering and struggle and, uh, and loss? You know, when you hear Scott Sauls teach about his depression, when you hear Sammy Rhodes write in his book about his um, struggles uh, and how God has forged um, beauty in their lives through... Um, uh, through uh, trial and hardship and adversity. Um, a friend of mine was telling me about a, uh, uh, a man he knew. He said, this man is the deepest Christian I've ever known. And, and the reason is, is because um, he, had, he had two children run out in the road and get hit by a car and killed. And uh, my friend said, if you, it, when I said, you know, you are the, you are the deepest, there's, there's deeper water that flows through you than anyone I know. The man said, you know, the truth is I'd rather be shallow. I'd rather have my babies back. 
I'd rather be shallow. Suffering um, yields, um, it makes us tougher, it makes us stronger, it makes us deeper. The problem is, is that due to parental over-involvement in our day, we know that, that you know, article after article, right, that we're producing um, what, what college um, um, counselors refer to as students who are teacups. They're fragile uh, because mom and dad hustled in. You know, if, uh, if, their, if their little girl didn't make the school play, then mom and dad came and complained and, and made a big fuss. Their kid doesn't... Uh, um, uh, get the, the starting position on the basketball team. Mom and dad throw a fit. Um, instead of letting their children um, bear the consequences of a difficult, and you know, if somebody says a mean word to their second grader, they're calling up the parents of the other uh, families if this is going to destroy their child. Um, you don't produce Marines, you know, without pain. Um, you know, if you, in the Marine Corps, they send you to this place called. Paris Island. Was any place ever more misnamed? Do you think they have like croissants there? <laughs> Baguettes? Paris. Paris Island. Is it, is it like sandals? You know, all you can eat, all you can drink. Um, Love Nest, Paris Island. Um, no, 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 you're going to be put into conflict and they've got to get you ready um, for the conflict. I heard about a Navy SEAL who, uh, in training, SEAL Bud training, that died the other day in training. He drowned uh, because the training is hard and difficult to produce warriors, overcomers. And I'll tell you something. The Bible says that God will prune us to make us more beautiful, and he will let us suffer to make us strong. When I was a little kid, I had to learn this verse. No discipline at the time seemeth to be profitable. Yeah, like, no kidding, right? I mean, who thinks of discipline? Who, who you know, when you're, when you're a little boy and your father's whooping you, who turns around to dad and says, I just appreciate this. <laughs> I appreciate you stepping up as a man and, uh, and doing your duty. I know it hurts you more than it hurts me, but I nominate you man of the year. It doesn't really go down that way. The Bible says no discipline at the time seemeth to be profitable. We hate it. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. There's a guy in the Bible named uh, Jacob. I get a, There could be Jacobs in here. It used to be a very popular thing to name your kid Jacob. Um, and yet, the, and yet Jacob means like schemer. Um, Jacob is wily, um, you know. And so Jacob in the Bible, what does he do? He's a mama's boy for one thing. And he, um, <laughs> sorry, Jake. Um, he, um, and so he steals the birthright from his brother and he fools his dad. And, and, uh, and he's making his way through life on his uh, scheming and his ingenuity and and, uh, and then God decides enough with this, right? God decides to make him useful. So God descends on Jacob. And you know what the Bible says? He picks him up and he slams him on the ground and he dislocates his hip. And Jacob is um, physically impaired the rest of his life. Now that may not be your image of Jesus. Maybe you look at Jesus because... I grew up in a Sunday school class that had a picture of Jesus on the wall, and he was holding a little lammy, you know, 
And that's really what Jesus is like as he works at the animal shelter and he holds bunnies, you know, and he's, he's kind of pasty and, and... But the truth is, is that he will break you. He will break your back. He will break your will. You know, people say, I don't think God will ever give you more than you can handle. Gag me, right? <laughs> it's the whole point. If you could handle it, why would we need him? You know, God will break us and uh, he will buckle uh, until our legs buckle and we cry, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Um, you know the story of Johnny Erickson, a young girl, beautiful uh, young girl, cheerleader, popular, dives into a lake her senior year in high school, strikes her head on the bottom and becomes a quadriplegic. Johnny Erickson could say, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior and I'll say, Jesus, see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that, that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I, it never would have happened had you not given me the blessing of that wheelchair. Got it? There's a purpose to it. Thirdly, what's the consolation of suffering? Okay, there's a purpose to it, we know it. But in the trough of suffering, how do you make it? How do you make it when, when life hurts so bad um, how can we be faithful in the, in the face of horrific and unexpected suffering? Jesus says in this passage, do not be afraid. Why are we, um, uh, why are we not afraid? Because um, we have his presence, for one. We have his presence. So often when we suffer, we feel alone. But Jesus says in this passage, um, I know your tribulation. Uh, I know suffering. He's called the man of sorrows, right? He's acquainted with grief. And when we go through suffering, Jesus goes in. God binds his heart so closely to the sufferer that any wound you feel wounds him. Any wound you feel wounds him. Do you remember when, talk about getting knocked down like Jacob was. How about Saul? Saul is blinded by God. Listen, God plays to keep. He doesn't mess around. To save your soul, he may bruise your body. And so he knocks Saul to the ground and blinds him. But you remember what he says? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What did he say next? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my children? That's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Saul was on his way. Uh, to Syria, to Damascus, to kill Christians. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my brothers and sisters? Why are you persecuting Christians? That's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. It's personal. They're wounds. They're my wounds. So whatever suffering you have, and some of you are in it right now, you're not alone. You're never alone. One of the most heartwarming moments for me of hiking in Peru to Machu Picchu was this killer day of five straight hours uh, up to 14,000 feet. And as I trudged to the last stairway, to the last, you know, 50 steps up to the top, my sons who had already been there for hours um, 
were, uh, were looking down and they're cheering me on, you know, come on, pops, come on, pops, you can make it. And then suddenly my youngest son, Tucker, he couldn't take it anymore. He, um, he came bounding down the steps, grabbed my backpack off my back and said, come on, dad, let's go. And I never had to stop after that and rest. I'm doing it with you. That's what God says. I'm doing it with you. Got it? He's with us. Secondly, um, in suffering, the consolation of suffering is we have his wisdom. Listen to this. It's fascinating because God says uh, here, um, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then in parentheses he says, but you are rich. What does that mean? I know your, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Um, listen, we are rich. Um, and we're rich um, in what God is doing in our lives when we suffer. There's a wisdom gap when we suffer, right? We got no idea why God is doing what he's doing. It doesn't make a bit of sense to us. Um, if you know what God knows and you could see what he sees, you would know he was up to your good in allowing suffering. Our first child got to be in second grade, um, our, our oldest son. Um, he started having horrific uh, back pain. And uh, every doctor's visit we made to, to you know, more and more specialists, the, the diagnosis got worse and worse and worse until finally we went to a pediatric oncologist at a, at a big university medical center. And he said, your son has a tumor on his spine and uh, we're going to have to go in there and we're going to have to get this out. And, um, and so we went through the, a, a horrific surgery. It was six hours of, uh, of surgery and, and blood transfusions and, and the whole week of recovery in the hospital, full body cast. His roommate was dying in the hospital. I mean, it, it, was, it was horrible. Every moment of it was, uh, was horrible. And finally, after a week of, of this and the whole, you know, six weeks before of, uh, of, of build up to it, it was over. You know, you can't describe the relief as we went um, home and his grandparents had flown down from Chicago and we got him a, a bike and we made the biggest mistake of our life. We got him a dog and we, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, his sisters had the sidewalk chalk and there were banners up on the house, welcome home and and, and I was cooking steaks on the grill outside to celebrate, you know, our son uh, is back. And, uh, and the phone rang, and it was the surgeon. And he said, you know that MRI we took right when you left the hospital? I don't even know how to tell you this, but we didn't get it. We have to operate again. One week later, we had to bring our son back to the same hospital for a complete do-over. And now my son knew what he faced. He was ignorant the first time, but now he knew what lay ahead of him. He's only a second grader, but when I walked him back for the anesthesia, I had to pick him up and wrestle him onto the gurney and lay on top of him to pin him down. Now, do you think that boy thought his dad was for him at that moment? See, there's a wisdom gap in suffering. God's up to something good. He's always up to something good. Um, and, uh, you know, 
We thank God every day for the wisdom that we cannot, uh, for the good that we cannot see. A number of years ago, I spoke at RUF retreat um, in the, in the Mid-South and, and uh, Tennessee and Vanderbilt. And, and uh, there was a young um, girl who was a, uh, worked on staff there. Her name was Paige Brown. And uh, Paige was single. Many of you have read uh, uh, or heard Paige's uh, essay because her younger sister had gotten married and Paige was pushing up towards 30. And of that, Paige said, you know, I long to be married. My younger sister just got married. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and new corning wear. She said, is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It's a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. I'm not single because I'm too spiritually unstable to deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to need one. I'm single because God is absolutely abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. It's a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single, for no good thing will God withhold from me. I want to be married. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is good to me, and I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is good to me. Not my will, but his be done. Until then, I am claiming as my theme verse, if any man would come after me, let him. So... (laughs) So how do we make it through suffering, his presence, his wisdom, and then the reward? What does it say? I will give you the crown of life. It's the wreath. The crown of life was the wreath that honors the triumphant uh, athlete. The the, uh, fellow from Emory won the wreath today, right? Uh, The triumphant um, biathlon, um, uh, the wreath. You know what Jesus says in this passage? I love it. He says, for 10 days you will have tribulation. You know what that means? It's coming, it's going to be bad, but it's just 10 days. There's an 11th day coming. There's an end to it. There is an 11th day coming, and I am in charge. And, uh, and the wreath that, um, that, that, that Jesus has won for us, um, uh, we will receive it. What he has accomplished, we will um, receive. One day everything sad will come untrue. Do you know that? One day everything sad will come untrue. A year and a half ago, I got a call. It was a couple days before Thanksgiving. A guy in our church I love, because he grew up as our, in our church. He's married now. and I think he had four dads when he was growing up. Love this kid. He's married, and, and they're having their first child their first child's, their son was due on Thanksgiving Day. Five days before that, they went in for a doctor's appointment and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And now they're in the hospital. And they're getting ready to induce labor so she can deliver uh, their deceased little boy. And you know, driving to the hospital, it's, it's just like, Jesus, come on, man can't do this. You can't do this to this guy. His dad was strangled in a drug deal. His older brother died at 21 uh, when he ran his car off the road, probably uh, stoned out of his mind. 
This kid suffered so much, and now you're going to take his baby away? Went in the hospital room to him, and what do you do? What do you say, you know? And all I could say to, to, uh, to John that day was, um, somebody hates this more than you do. And I don't think this is any consolation to you today because I don't think anything is. But I know this, that Jesus can't wait until the day he'll give you your son back. He cannot wait to give you your baby boy back. I believe that. I will give you the crown of life, Jesus said. So, let me finish with this then. So what's the mandate? Be faithful unto death. You'll do crazy things for the one you love. You know, when they went to kill Peter, what did he say? You can't crucify me like you did Jesus. Turn me upside down. I don't, I don't deserve to, to be crucified like he did. Did you, you ever hear of the martyr Polycarp? Polycarp was the bishop of where? Smyrna, this very town. Polycarp was 86 years old, and he wouldn't worship the emperor. They didn't want to kill him. He was one of the most venerated men in the whole town. They said, all you have to do is just deny Christ. Just, we'll say deny Christ. All you have to do is nod. Polycarp said, are you kidding me? 86, 80 and 6 years he has been faithful to me, and I would deny him. And they burned him at the stake. You'll do crazy things for the one you love. But here's the challenge for us. Martyrdom is easy compared to having to die every day over the course of a long life. And for most of us, what will it look like to be faithful unto death? It will look like this. It will be a life of mundane faithfulness. You know what it looks like to be faithful unto death? It means you get up every morning and you get your kids ready for school and you pack them a lunch and you clean your house, and you make beds, and you, uh, and you wipe up uh, their spit up, and you get up in the middle of the night when they have diarrhea for seven days in a row, you know, and you die, and you die, and you die to your children. You read them in the Bible at night, and you sing about Jesus to them, and you discipline them, and you give up your dream job. The world says, oh, don't ever give up on your dreams. You know what your dream is? Your dream is to die for Jesus, to be faithful unto death. And so sometimes you give up your dream job because your family's thriving right where you live. And it's a hard job, and it's not ever what you wanted to do with your life, but you put food on your table. That's what it looks like to be a Christian for most of us. And you adopt kids, uh, and you're a guardian ad litem, and you do foster care, um, and you cut the lawn of the widow who lives next door, and you take care of your grandparents when they get dementia. That's what it looks like to be faithful unto death. It's not glamorous and it's not uh, exciting. It's just day to day to day being faithful to the Lord Jesus. I, I sat at a, at a wedding recently and a, little, a young girl sat at my table, somebody just a few years older than you guys. She's married. She's got, I think, two little kids of her own. She's a children's ministry director at her church on top of that. She's got two little babies. She's a children's ministry director. She's a wife. Um, and she's telling me how she's uh, going to start being a foster parent, taking foster kids. I remember looking at her and saying, you're nuts. You're nuts. How could you sustain that? I mean, that would be exhausting. That will be so hard. 
And she just looked at me and said, I didn't know it was supposed to be easy. It was a rebuke, wasn't it? Who said it's going to be easy? Mundane faithfulness. Listen, you'll do crazy things for the one you love. Jesus did. Jesus is the ultimate Duke of Windsor. Jesus gave up the palace. He gave up the throne. He gave up his place as the king, didn't he? And he did it all to marry a a tawdry woman. A woman who isn't very uh, pretty at all, you know. We're not very pretty, are we? In fact, it's scandalous what Jesus did. But uh, you'll do almost anything for the one you love. Nobody's ever suffered like Jesus suffered. And when you feel like your life is too hard and there's just no good you can see, you know what you need to do? Look up. Look to what you can see. Look at the crazy man who's hanging on a cross, faithful unto death, because he would do anything for the one he loved. You. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it would be awesome to be faithful unto death, but we, we confess that to be faithful for the next 30 minutes would be an amazing accomplishment for us. So we bow our heads and acknowledge the obvious that, that you are the one who is faithful unto death and no one else. So Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends uh, in this room uh, that as they drive home uh, tomorrow, their hearts might be filled with wonder uh, that they're heading towards their wedding to you, the one who loves them with an everlasting love, and that we will not be faithful, but you are always faithful. And because we belong to you, you will never, ever, ever let us go. You will not let us get away from you. You may allow us uh, uh, to wander, but you will find us and you will bring us home. There is no lover like you, Jesus. There is no one beautiful like you, Jesus. Um, And we can't believe that we belong to you forever. So we love you, Jesus. We love you. We are amazed at you. We worship you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.